the Harvard Negotiation and Mediation Clinical Program, I'm Sarah Dalnito Budish. I'm Neil McGarrigan, and this is Thanks for Listening, a podcast about bridging the political divide in America. You may recall an episode we did a while back about a series of community dialogues that took place in the wake of the police killing of Philando Castile during a traffic stop in Falcon Heights, Minnesota. Our guests on that show, Sharon Press and John Thompson, shared their stories about those dialogues. Sharon as one of the organizers and John as a participant. As a committed activist, John was skeptical at first of the Falcon Heights dialogues until one of Sharon's colleagues persuaded him to at least give one session a try. It turned out that the choice to participate was the start of a paradigm shift for John about the value and the potential of dialogue and perspective sharing to be a source of healing and connection. And in that same Falcon Heights episode, Sharon Press shared some thought-provoking insights about the challenges of making dialogue an effective tool to heal divided communities after crisis erupts. When the wounds are so raw and so exposed and the gulf between us and them feels too wide, she and John both spoke about the forces working against dialogue and against connection in Falcon Heights under those circumstances. And the process emphasized that as important as it is to engage conflict and divides that become so much more apparent after a traumatic and triggering event, there's a need and an opportunity to work with communities to address really deep fault lines and, and conflict that exist before one, a triggering event like that leads to civil unrest, is, you know, to strengthen relationships and build a framework and a foundation for communities to respond better when a crisis that has existed just beneath the surface eventually boils over. In the past two episodes, we've seen a couple of different approaches to answering these kinds of questions. Ben Fink and Roadside Theater challenge communities to think about how to create together as a way of strengthening connections despite underlying differences. Gwen Johnson and Paula Green shared their experience with Hands Across the Hills, which is an effort to build relationships that run deeper than people's starkly different political views. Our guests on this episode are wrestling with these questions in a different way, Bill Froelich and Becky Monroe run the Divided Community Project at The Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law. We caught up with them and have excerpted here some highlights of a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation about the inspiration for the project and how they think about the challenges and opportunities of getting communities to focus on, as they beautifully framed it, listening for the divide. Just by way of brief background about Bill and Becky, both have deep experience as dispute resolution professionals and are on the faculty and teach at Moritz College of Law. Bill is the Langdon Fellow in Dispute Resolution there and the Deputy Director of the Divided Community Project. Becky is the Director of the Divided Community Project and is a Distinguished Practitioner in Residence at Moritz. We asked them both what drew them to the Divided Community Project. Here's Bill. I'm working with the Divided Community Project because I believe it's a great opportunity to support communities as they strive to develop resiliency so that they can respond to social crises in a way that the community as a whole is better off to address division that tears at the social fabric of that community. And Becky, what about you? Um, You have a lengthy career in civil rights work. You started at the Department of Justice, uh, you worked at the White House, and most recently at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law, um, mostly with communities in crisis and conflict because of issues of race, national origin, et cetera. So how did your work uh, as a civil rights lawyer lead you to the Divide Community Project? I think I saw that there was such a critical role both for litigation, um, and I think litigation definitely has its place, but also recognizing that in terms of sustainable change, what I really saw make a difference was when communities 
um, were treated with the respect that they had earned and were engaged in the process throughout. So that if you really wanted to see sustainable change in a community, it would not only be through litigation, but that it would necessarily be through very active community engagement. So that's, uh, you know, I thought the Divided Community Project gave me this opportunity to work with communities around the country um, and, and kind of came back to that core principle of respecting the fact that the wisdom to address some of the most challenging issues in our country really resides in the people who are often uh, the most affected by those issues. And so that if we can introduce a process that supports their leadership, that we, we would help be able to support the people in, the, in, in communities across the country to, to make the kind of change they want to see. Yeah, well, and, and looking at communities around the country, you know, one of the things that inspired us to want to know more about the Divided Community Project was an episode we did about the tragedy in, in Falcon Heights. I'm sure you recall, Philando Castile was shot and killed by the police, and it was a, a really traumatic event for that community. And it was just one example among many dozens in which a community was pushed past its breaking point. And, you know, looking back at the recent history in the United States, with so many examples like that, how does it frame up where you all are now and how you look at the work you're doing? Is it an inspiration for you and the work you're doing at the Divided Community Project? Certainly that's the inspiration for it. Josh Stolberg and Nancy Rogers, uh, two faculty here at Moritz, asked this question shortly after Trayvon Martin was killed in Sanford, Florida, tragically by George Zimmerman, a neighborhood watch volunteer, uh, where they looked at the community in Sanford and said, what can dispute resolution uh, offer communities in crisis? And looked at some of the work that Becky was doing at CRS, at the Community Relations Service at the time in Sanford, Florida, for inspiration for our field uh, and for the Divided Community Project. Well, and so, so Becky, how about that? I mean, from your perspective, where you know you were doing a lot of this work in, in, in this field before you got the, to the Divided Community Project, what, what were you observing over the last you know, nearly decade as one after the other incident happens and you, you've got communities around the country that are really dealing with serious and severe reaction and responses to acute pain and trauma in their communities? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I um, I really valued about the way that Nancy and Josh approached this question is that they recognized um, that that civil unrest and protest is, is something that's actually really essential to our democracy. And so when we're talking about no, looking at civil unrest and protest in response to injustice and in response to, as you mentioned, acute pain and suffering in communities, the idea of using dispute system design and of using mediation principles was not that we were going to prevent civil unrest. Rather, we recognize that it's played a critical role in democracy. But the, the question was, how do you sort of help keep people safe in the short term and thinking about these issues around civil unrest, but then really use them as an opportunity to pivot to address the longer term issues that may underlie those crises. And so one of the things I saw just sort of being there on the ground in the in the short term after Trayvon Martin was killed and as the community was sort of grappling with, with again, just unspeakable pain, the family, um, people coming into Sanford, you know, I think the city of Sanford, its population almost doubled um, with people coming to protest and to march and to speak about issues that were not only coming to the fore because of this horrific, tragic death and, 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 and murder, but also because um, because there were issues that were underlying uh, the tension there. But then really also start to think, we have an obligation here as we see this kind of suffering to start thinking about what are some of the underlying issues that are continuing to drive this tension in Sanford. 
and they looked at issues around um, people being concerned that certain services were only being provided to certain parts of the community. So that, uh, for example, African-American uh, neighborhoods felt like they weren't getting the same kinds of services. Concerns around opportunities for young people of color in the area. Concerns about the history of the area and the way it was playing out. And and then saying, okay, so we need to start thinking about how do we address those issues. And so I think in Sanford, they ended up you know, not only grappling with it, but developing a nine-point plan to enhance the unity in the city. So you know, I think in some ways, Sanford is a is an example of sort of what we looked at at the, at the Divided Community Project as the way that communities can both, again, keep people safe in the short term, respect the need and the important role that civil unrest plays in a community, but then turn to addressing some of the underlying issues um, that are affecting you know any community in this country and and recognize that, that you can bring these mediation principles, these dispute system design principles to the work in a way that allows the community to have for, that allows cities to respect the power of the people in the community. So you mentioned dispute systems design principles. What are the core principles of of your work, of the Divided Community Project, and how do you put them into practice in the projects that you do? It really starts uh, from the founding of the project, bringing together stakeholders and conducting an assessment uh, of how we might move forward. The, the first convening of the Divided Community Project was almost uh, five years ago in 2015, and it convened folks from Sanford, uh, as well as advocacy leaders, uh, public officials, including police officials and other former elected or appointed officials, individuals experienced uh, in conducting mediations in divided communities, as well as researchers and legal leaders from across the country who have been experienced and exposed to, to addressing these issues. That is the starting point for all of our design processes, conducting an assessment, identifying stakeholders that should be in, involved in the room, not just stakeholders who are elected officials uh, or appointed officials or police chiefs or nonprofit leaders, but also those gatekeepers, those informal leaders in communities that might be able to connect uh, with residents to uh, identify the pulse of the community so that the Divided Community Project can help communities be proactive in identifying and addressing the issues that really tear at the fabric of their communities so that those issues don't boil over, those issues don't spark when there is a police involved in shooting or another, for lack of a better word, triggering event that sparks protest and unrest. Where CRS in, in Sanford was helping Sanford react uh, to the unrest and protest that was sparked by Trayvon Martin, Becky described so many simmering and underlying divisions and tensions. And so we think that if you bring stakeholders together, conduct an assessment, and try to identify some processes to identify and address some of the divisive issues in communities, that perhaps communities can do something about those divisions in advance, uh, that perhaps communities can set up processes for simply identifying those issues. And uh, when there is a, a crisis in the community, though, through those processes, relationships will be enhanced uh, so that at a minimum, a community can respond more resiliently and more effectively to the, the issue that sparked that division. So for those communities that you've worked with, what is your entry point there? You know, how do you initiate that project of working with the stakeholders? Um, for one thing, I imagine that there are different levels of reception and openness even within the same community. 
Yeah, that's, I think um, those are all, those are all great questions and ones that we're actually, you know, continuing to sort of develop our own, our own ways of responding to sort of some of those challenges. So for example, we are right now working in a a sort of mid-sized city where they've had some tension connected to white supremacists in the, in the community and allegations that people are connected to white supremacists and sort of it's brought a lot of tension, um, both connected to the person who's alleged to be to have those ties as well as to the sort of broader community. So, you know, one of the things we, you know, there in terms of getting people to the table, one of the challenges is that you may, you know, first identify the people who are directly connected to the to the controversy. So the people who maybe have to work around that person who, you know, it's a public setting. So there are others sort of that are connected to that to the issue at hand. But then also recognizing that it brings up issues in a community that are not new. So, you know, if you're talking about a community where the Klan has been active for generations, the issue that may be coming up may not be directly related to them, but then you need to recognize there are people who are affected that may not be sort of directly present um, in the immediate conflict. So in that example, the mayor reached out and said, look, this is something that my city's going through. I know that it is both directed to this immediate conflict related to this um, alleged connection to white supremacists and the, the conflict that's sort of come up around it. But we also know that it's touching on issues that are not new for, for our community, for our state, for our region, or for our country. And so, you know, in that way, you know, the person was sort of familiar a little bit with the project and with the work and was open to thinking about these issues. You know, the next challenge came with, we, we were working with a mediator who kind of went out and started talking to people in the community. And there, the challenge was, how do you get people at the table, not just the people who are the head of the local community organizations, so there are NAACP, Urban League, uh, other civil rights groups, um, uh, community organizations, uh, city officials. How do you get people who clearly have an important role in their community but don't have a title? And so that's, you know, one of the things we did there in the first instance is we, we certainly, we talked to the city, we, we made sure we talked to people who worked for the city. When these issues happen, and especially if the city government is involved, sometimes people forget that city employees who are dealing day to day with the trauma of, uh, of an event, um, you know, they also have an important perspective to share. So we talked to them, we, we asked them about the leaders they would identify. And then when we started talking to leaders in the community, we said, who's not here? Who's not at the table? Who are we missing? And I think... You know, I think from a dispute system designs perspective, this is something that is a huge challenge at all times, is making sure you really have, um, you know, all of the stakeholders at the table that need to be there. Uh, we try to build into the process a way to make sure that we are always asking ourselves that question, you know, who's not here at every stage so that we can try and, and be as inclusive as possible. Uh, I would just say the, the shorthand way we describe sort of how we work with communities or how we start to work with communities is that we go where our services are requested or accepted. Um, you know, obviously we're just a, we only want to go where our services are useful. And so I have had many conversations with leaders, community leaders, as well as um, government leaders who acknowledge that they had some tension. They just weren't in a place where they were ready to have, have support from the outside. And so I think you, the, it's really critical to respect that and just recognize that we go where people are ready. And um, what does that mean to not be in a place to, be prepared to engage in that kind of work? Well, I think, you know, and I think sometimes they are prepared to engage in that kind of work, but just not with us. So maybe they've got local capacity. I mean, one of the things we always ask when we go into a community is get a sense, are there people that are there that can do this kind of work? So are there local community mediation centers that have experience in working with 
broader community conflict. And sometimes, so sometimes it's just that they think they do have the local resources. Other times I think, you know, it's, it's just a question of sort of, one of the things we talk about is that it's really critical to, to build relationships of trust with, with community leaders before a crisis occurs, you know, and I think obviously that can't always happen. Sometimes it, you, you build it afterwards and that's where you are. But sometimes if people are in the midst of a crisis, um, you know, maybe they're in the midst of building those relationships that they think would be necessary for them to engage in that kind of work. And they want to try and build those. Um, and, they, and they think they're making some progress, in which case they should you know, certainly move forward with that. And then at a later stage, they may say, you know, we've, we, we have strengthened some of these relationships. If we could have an outside person come facilitate some of these conversations, it would be helpful to us. Well, so the the divided community project, of course, is situated within a law school. Are are there benefits um, and maybe also challenges or risks in the work that you do that stem from that affiliation with a law school? Yeah, that's I you know we I think about that in a few different ways. So one is I think um, you know we've we've mentioned a little bit we've got the reports that we've brought in people to develop and. Um, and again, they are as practical and user-friendly as possible. They are really intended to help leaders when they're in the midst of these different crises. Um, but another way we do this work, we, we call it the bridge initiative. So it's another sort of, in the sort of toolbox that we have, one is this bridge initiative, which is where we actually do send out mediators. And, and some of those mediators are people who have absolutely no academic affiliation absent their connection to us. So for example, we work with former police chief, former mayor, former head of the Urban League, um, people who also are trained mediators. So in that context, it's interesting because they don't have the academic, they've never really worked in an academic setting outside of this connection with us. And so there we kind of, you know, we hope we can kind of offer the best of both worlds. But another way I think about it, I was just working in last week with two mediators as well as actually a group of students in a part of Appalachia where we were working uh, around issues around the opioid crisis and sort of how um, tension between the different parties that respond to the opioid crisis in that community. And one of the things that we felt like it was important for us to say and to reiterate was that, yes, we were connected to a university, but we were not there to study nor to research. We were there, we were there to offer a service. And if it was useful, that's great. And if not, then that's, that's, that's great as well. So I, you know, I think there's the benefits of having uh, access to re- research has already been completed, but also access to students who are who bring their own energy, perspective, and thoughts to these issues. Um, and I, you know, there there are also challenges because people make certain assumptions that if you're coming in from a university, you're, you're coming to do one thing, you know, and one thing only, which is to sort of study them, which is, of course, not, that's not our role. Well, and I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned your students, because one thing we've been dying to ask you about is a simulation exercise that you use at the Divided Community Project that was developed by a woman who was actually a student of yours at the time, Jackie Fisher. And I know you call it the Midland Simulation, which sets up a fictional community that's dealing with, you know, high-tension conflicts surrounding immigration I think you set it up with a local news outlet that's sharing fake information about the cost of immigrants, a video of a Midland high school student bullying a Muslim classmate that goes viral. Uh, maybe there's a local elected official that's railing against immigrants. In any case, a fictional community in one sense, but drawn from incidents and dynamics that are we know are occurring throughout the U.S. today. So you run this simulation with community leaders, activists, police, first responders, city officials, where they try to develop a plan to respond to this brewing 
situation. Um, and then afterwards, they have a debriefing session to draw lessons from their experience in the exercise. What can you share with us about some of the impacts that you've seen in communities where you've been able to use this tool? Uh, it's a point of entry so that uh, we can help communities think through uh, <clears throat> some of the ideas and concepts we, we've laid out in the Divided Community Pro Project reports, like uh, expanding uh, who they're communicating with uh, in advance of a crisis, uh, developing processes where they can better listen to and identify divisions in their community. Uh, Becky and I were just uh, running the simulation in October in cities surrounding Oklahoma City. So we ran the simulation in Midwest City, which is a suburb in Oklahoma, as well as in Norman, where Oklahoma, I'm sorry, University of Oklahoma is is based. And we've used that as a as an entry point, uh, one to ask city leaders from and advocacy leaders from about eight jurisdictions in the Oklahoma City area to think through how they connect with stakeholders, uh, what plans they have in place in advance of civil unrest, not plans that the police department has, but plans communities as a whole have. So who might the police contact in the advocacy community when there is a social crisis? Who might the advocates uh, contact uh, in the city infrastructure to get support for their communities so that their issues can be addressed in advance of a social crisis? Uh, and so we use this as a, as a point of entry in communities to help them begin thinking and to say, uh, say to those communities that we offer other services like the Bridge Initiative, and we have other toolkits through our case studies and reports that they might take a look at and they might implement in, in their communities. And I would, I would just say one of the reasons uh, that I think that it's a, an attractive, you know, a potentially attractive tool for communities and also a, a way to sort of think about some of these issues and some of these practices around mediation techniques and dispute resolution techniques is that it's a very concrete, um, very practical exercise. So it's pretty low stakes in that you're doing a simulation and you're doing a tabletop exercise. Um, but it also feels very real and, and you can walk away with very concrete steps. You know, in this simulation, we looked through these issues. We didn't have this. And this is something we can develop. And we've heard that in the aftermath, you know, when we've, when we've kind of gone through the debrief of these simulations, people will say, you know, we've got a plan for if there's a natural disaster, we have a plan for, you know, if, if there's a shooter, but we, we haven't really developed a plan for something, you know, for kind of responding effectively to, to unrest in this way. And that's something we can do. Um, but it also emphasizes in order to do that, you have to have those relationships in place. And so it necessarily requires that people think through that, the, the issues of sort of developing those relationships. And I think um, in particular in getting all the different parties to the table. So for example, we will have, in the last one we did, we had police chiefs, we had uh, people from the fire department, we had uh, local community leaders, uh, civil rights leaders, um, and then other sort of city employees. There's something in the simulation that allows everyone to kind of feel comfortable coming to the table. Most law enforcement officials are and and um, are comfortable coming to, to to the table to do a tabletop exercise. They often do them in order to prepare for other events. Let me just add, Becky, that uh, one of the items that I love seeing in the simulation is when we have the nonprofit and advocacy leaders in the room with the police and the city staff, and they switch roles. So in the simulation, you have an advocate, a community organizer playing the police chief, and you have the deputy police chief playing the community organizer. And they get to see how this a social crisis unfolds from a different lens. 
And I think they walk away with that uh, with significant value, having a better understanding for some of the pressures uh, people on the other side of the protest might be facing and a better understanding about how uh, they might work more effectively and more collaboratively uh, in the future. So the simulation can be and, and, and has been for you all a really important entry point into communities to start working with folks to get them thinking about building relationships, preparing for um, when underlying crises do erupt. And, but you know, the work can't stop just there. You, I know you, you go on. And one of the projects that you feature on your website and we've learned a little bit about, we'd love to hear more from you. It's, it's called Orlando Speaks, based, of course, in Orlando, Florida. Can you tell us a little bit about that initiative, how it came about and how it worked? Valencia College has a Peace and Justice Institute that uh, was working with the Orlando Police Department and the Orlando Mayor's Office uh, to develop this Orlando Speaks uh, set of community sessions between the police department, the city leaders, and residents of those communities. And the really interesting thing about this project is, is, is it was really thoughtfully developed uh, as a way to convene residents and police officials not to have a panel session where police present information or residents uh, get frustrated with police, but instead to have small group conversations where one police officer sits with three to five uh, residents in the local community and they connect with one another. They have meaningful conversations about what their hopes and fears are for the community facilitated by uh, Valencia's facilitators. And one of the great stories about this program that I, I really love that was highlighted in a local Orlando newspaper is, it, is about a protester who was protesting the first Orlando Speaks conversation. And the point of her group's protest was that the Orlando Speaks conversations weren't going far enough. And I believe that uh, one of the facilitators walked out of the first Orlando Speaks session and said, you know, our doors open. We'd love to have you uh, become a part of this conversation uh, because we want to hear your voice. We want your voice in the room. Uh, and many of the protesters did go into the first Orlando Speaks session and engaged in the first conversations and then brought others to the follow-up conversations, including a, a woman uh, whose son was tragically killed by a police officer in the Orlando jurisdiction who left an Orlando Speaks session uh, saying that, quote, she found love in the room. She found compassion. She found a lot of officers who have pain too, just like she does. So this is a, a such a clear example of how the value of conversation can build empathy, can build relationships, even for individuals who, who have suffered such uh, traumatic and tragic events in their community and uh, a, a value of the uh, Orlando Speaks conversations. I'm I'm really struck by that story of uh, one of the facilitators in Orlando speaks uh, sort of welcoming a protester in and saying the door is open and it kind of strikes me that that's a function that the Divided Community Project serves. You're a door that for communities and for stakeholders in communities to try something new and try something different um, proactively and in response to social crisis. As we close today, I wonder if you can give us a sense of kind of what's next. What are what can you give us an example of a new initiative that you're working on now and that you're excited about? Sure. So you know, we um, for the next year or so, we have uh, identified a few priorities, and among them is sort of recognizing some of the building tension with 
the election in 2020. And, and, and one of the places that we've identified that, that you know, may need additional and, and special support are kind of college campuses. And so we've been talking to a lot of different leaders on campuses, including administrators who've dealt with issues around when controversial speakers come to campus. How do you think about issues around the First Amendment, around sort of uh, protecting the free exchange of ideas, but also keeping the campus to be a safe place for all students and, and sort of grappling with some of those issues. So we've been thinking about how do we bring some of these um, principles to that uh, to that context. And, um, and honestly, one of the things that's really great about this project is that Every time we go into a community, whether it's to do a tabletop exercise or through the Bridge Initiative, we learn about a new area that we should be thinking about or a new opportunity to, to get more people engaged. So one of the nice things is that we do have some flexibility, too, to be, um, to be responsive to what we're seeing in communities around opportunities. For Neil and me as, as uh, academics and practitioners, too, and, but hopefully also for, for our listeners as well, there are so many uh, projects that you're working on um, and in so many communities, and that, that's just really exciting. So thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Yeah, thank you both. It's been really great hearing um, what you're up to and what you've um, been thinking through and, and how you're applying it in communities around the country. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. It was fun chatting with both of you. Projects Bill and Becky talked about today are only a fraction of what the Divided Community Project is working on right now. You can find all their case studies, reports for practitioners, and information about other initiatives on their website at moritzlaw.osu.edu slash dividedcommunityproject. And they encourage everyone to check them out. The Divided Community Project is supported in part by grants from the American Arbitration Association's International Center for Dispute Resolution, which also supports this podcast. You also can visit our website, hnmcp.law.harvard.edu slash podcast, and you'll find there links to the Divided Community Project website, materials for today's show, and a full transcript of this episode and past episodes. As we round out the 10-episode series in our podcast on political divides in America, we're still really interested in hearing from you with your thoughts and questions. Reach out to us if you know of an individual or group who's working to bridge the divide. Send us an email at hnmcp at law.harvard.edu or find us on Twitter at hnmcp. We'd love to hear from you. We are grateful for the help and support of our colleagues at the Harvard Negotiation and Mediation Clinical Program, especially Tracy Blanchard and Bria Etienne. Thank you to Kate Ellis, our producer, and to the folks at the Harvard Media Production Center where we do our recording. Theme music is made available to us courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions, and this podcast was made possible by a grant from the American Arbitration Association's International Center for Dispute Resolution Foundation. You'll hear us again soon on our next episode. Thanks for listening. Yep, thanks for listening.